If you are looking to become a better leader in the outdoor adventure world, in the business world, or both, this is the Leading Steep Podcast. I'm Barry Cruz. In this podcast, I'm speaking with some of the leaders and adventure guides I admire most from around the world. I'll try and ask them the same questions you would, and I hope they'll share stories and practical ideas that we can all use to become better leaders. Welcome to the Leading Steep Podcast. In this conversation, I'm speaking with one of the most well-respected whitewater outfitters and guides anywhere. Zach Collier is the founder and owner of Northwest Rafting Company, which runs many of the best rivers in Oregon, Idaho, and the exotic paradise of Bhutan. Zach is too humble and too gracious to tell you this. As a qualified observer, I can say with some authority, Zach is a modern-day visionary and a world's leading expert in the whitewater rafting discipline. Now, I've never met Zach, so how do I know this? Zach is undoubtedly the world's most prolific sharer of whitewater rafting knowledge. At the time of this recording, people have viewed his hundreds of YouTube videos more than 650,000 times. Zach and I both share an affinity for legendary management guru Tom Peters. One of Tom's wisest axioms is to share your best work freely and without condition. It's a gift to the world that almost always comes back to you in gratitude, if nothing else. One of the benefits I'm enjoying most about this project and these interviews is the opportunity to learn myself and to reconsider what I'm doing as a leader and guide. Zach starts this part of our conversation at around 19 minutes, and you're gonna find his approach refreshing. Listen in particular for his focus on his own aspirations around leadership competencies and a vulnerable moment where he recognized he needed to fix a few things. Zach's done a good bit more than just talk about rafting. He's become politically connected for all the right reasons. He's made a number of trips to Washington, D.C., advocating for the protection of rivers and wilderness and the places we all love. When you learn more about him, I think you'll agree. Zach Collier is one of the world's great adventure guides. I hope you'll enjoy his take on Leading Steep. So, Zach Collier, thank you so much for joining the Leading Steep podcast. I'm really grateful and humbled that you shared some time with me to speak. I know you went boating today. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, a little cold, actually, because <laughs> it's winter. You know how you get chilled to the bone sometimes, and it just takes a while to warm up, and it's still a little cold. So I'm assuming it was dry suit weather today in Oregon. Yeah, definitely dry suit weather. It was sunny, but dry suit weather. What kind of boats were you uh, were you taking out today? Kayaking, rowing, paddling? All rowing cataracts. Cool. So there's five of us. We all kind of braved the cold temperatures, and it was just five dudes. We just It was just fun to just chat with the guys and and float down the river and share stories and some guys I hadn't seen for a couple of years, which was, which was pretty cool. This is one of the great things about boating, the camaraderie. I hope you and I get the chance to paddle together sometime like that. But so it was sort of a, a day off for you then no media work or anything else. Well, I mean, I was out there shooting films. So some of the stuff I, I, I got the drone out a little bit and, and did some GoPro footage. I wanted to get some shots of the downstream ferry. I'm working on a video series about whitewater rowing. It's a, like an online course and I realized the courses are pretty much done, but we don't have good examples of what it looks like to do a downstream ferry. And so I wanted to go out there and shoot that. So a little bit of work, but mainly fun. And it was interesting to put in two older gentlemen who I boat with a lot. These are guys, old timers, been boating since the 80s. One of them, I was, he just wanted to get on the river and push downstream. The other one was kind of kicking on shore. And we were the last two to put on. And, and he goes, man, that guy always just wants to get on the river and go. And I just want to be here and hang out with the guys. And it made me think a lot during the day, like what I'm doing out there boating. Am I out there just to paddle the river? Or am I out there to spend time with the guys and, and gals? But it was all guys today. Today was definitely about spending time with the guys. Cool. So you have different days, different speeds, right? I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the, the, the training that you're doing, the online river training that you're doing and capturing some video for that. One of the things I'm fascinated to ask you about is all of the projects that you're involved with right now, because you astonish me. I got to tell you, I don't know anybody who is more prolific in the river rafting space in terms of media and pumping things out there. I mean, your YouTube channel alone has more than 400 videos. Hi, welcome to the Gear Garage. My name is Zach, and this is my fun little internet show about whitewater stuff. And today I want to talk about river knives and in particular attaching river knives to PFDs. I've done a few episodes about PFDs, I've done a couple episodes recently about the clean line principle and knives have come out and I've kind of alluded to what I do with knives and I've had a few people ask me questions more about why I attach knives the way I do. 
and talk about this. So I thought I'd do this episode about attaching river knives to PFDs. So tell me about all your projects, so to start to finish. And I know your first biggest one is you own Northwest Rafting, right? I mean, that's embarrassing. 400 is a lot. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a wealth of knowledge for people, Zach. I don't, haven't realized it's that many, but I, I work hard. I like, I'm a hard worker and I like what I do. And so one of my mentors, Dick Linford, who ran Echo and he, he sort of showed me how to be an outfitter. He would always be like, Zach, you have endless energy. Like, I, I can't believe you. Some, he's like, someday you're going to get my age and not work as hard. And I'm like, yeah, that, I probably, but I just like doing these things. And I think two years ago, I decided I wanted to become a better public speaker. I, I had been invited to do public speaking at, for different things, but I was always, it made me nervous and I stumble over my words sometimes and I talk fast. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to schedule myself for talks. I'm going to make myself do public speaking in front of people and just do it more like on a regular basis. And I also realized I'm, I need to be better on camera. So I, I forced myself to get behind that camera and talk about something that I know about. I'm like, I'm in my garage. I'm going to talk about some piece of gear that I know about. And I'm going to practice that skill being behind the camera because I feel like it's a skill I want to develop as a person. Not knowing why necessarily, but it's just something that I admired in others. And so I just started recording and just uploading it. And I go back and watch those videos right now, and they're very embarrassing. Those first ones are, I know how much better I am now at it. I'm sort of embarrassed by those, but it's a good reminder to me that I'm, I've gotten better. And so all the video projects have just been me wanting to be a better public speaker. So I got to tell you, though, in my professional life, in the white collar world, you know, I lead people, I manage people who do what you do, who present professionally around the world. And Zach, I give you high marks. I think you do a great job. You have very few verbal crutches and stumbles and you generally present your thoughts very clearly and you're an articulate, eloquent guy. So I, I just love your work, Zach. And I, I, I'm filled with admiration about all of it. I got to tell you. <laughs> Thanks. I stumble over my words a lot. And when I watch it, I notice I say some words so fast that it's not a real word. <laughs> right. I'm saying the whole word, but it's, uh, I'm getting better all the time. That's for sure. And it's, it's something that I now admire when I watch the news or I watch anybody. I just admire it as a skill somebody has, but you couldn't imagine the number of times I'm halfway through a video and I, I have a brain fart or something and I go turn the camera off turn it back on and restart it from the beginning. The average video, I have to run like three or four times. I can't imagine how that works because I do the same thing myself, right? <laughs> when I record work pieces, I mean, there have been pieces where that I've recorded probably 20 times or something, you know, yeah. right? 20 takes for a thing because you want to just get it right and it's just not, it just doesn't sound right. But so the projects though, Northwest Rafting, we'll get back to in a minute, but Gear Garage, right? Has that been one of your biggest YouTube properties, I guess, right? I mean, that's the main thing is it's just like I try to upload something every three or four days. It's just me talking about something I love about boating. Really cool. And then you have a bunch of instructional video on there as well, right? You know, just talking about rafting in general, how to do what. And then there's a video review series that you and you, you and your yeah. buddy Aaron do, right? Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you helped us with that a bit too. I mean, so what, what happened was somebody sent me a video to review and I called Aaron and said, do you want to just get on the phone with me and then we'll review this and upload it? And we did it and it was really fun. And then we did another one and it was fun. And I'm like, Aaron, let's do this live and just see what happens. Like I've never done live video. Let's just try it live. And he I had to talk him into it. <laughs> and we did a YouTube live and it was really cool to get feedback from people while we were talking and get their thoughts. It was just fun for us. And then I'm like, let's just schedule it every Friday at 1230. And most of these things like podcasts and video, it's really hard, as you probably know with the podcast, it's really hard to get people to do it, to show yeah. up on time. And it takes some motivation. You got to kind of talk them into it. With Aaron, I've talked him into it. He's calling me, you know, Thursday night, Zach, are we doing it tomorrow? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Like he's very motivated, which motivates me. And so that's, that one's been fun. That one's just purely fun. And he's in Hawaii right now. Is that right? He's in Hawaii, yeah. Super cool. And you're, you, you guys are old boating friends. That's how you know, Aaron. Yeah, we went to college together and guided together on the Tuolumne. And yeah, we're old friends. We, we did some really cool kayaking trips back, back in the 90s. 
I'm going to interview Aaron at some point because he's a sage. He's got a lot of great things to share. And you know what? It was a big highlight for our family when you reviewed our videos, actually. So I, I want you to know that we were sitting on pins and needles like, you know, God, what he's going to say about us, you know? And Oh, man, if we knew that, we would have been really careful what we said. No, no, no. Listen, and, and, and there was even some constructive criticism in there that I'm really taking to heart, like letting go of your oars, you know, right? I mean, I was rowing open locks with oar rights and just dropping them at some of the big rapids. But anyways, that's another another story. So some of the other products then... You've got this um, online river training now that you're also offering, right? As well as there's a whitewater guidebook that you do online as well, it looks like. Is that that's yours? The whitewater guidebook, a lot of stories. So that started off, I actually was paid to build a website for a rafting company in California in the 90s. And, and I was just given money to go out and run rivers and write about them and make a website. And I saw quickly how smart, I didn't own it. All of a sudden I was like, ooh, I should own something like that. And so probably around 2004, I started a website, caliriver.com, that had descriptions of a bunch of California rivers that I knew. And I moved here, and I just changed it to Whitewater Guidebook. And it's just been a basically a 20-year project as like a side project. And it's something that maybe has a business side someday, but right now it's, it's just like an idea. And it has just, you know, what happens too is people call me all the time like, hey, I want to run this river, can you give me advice? And I, instead of spending half an hour on the phone with them, I can just, hey, look at this, all my, everything I know is here. You know, it helps share information with people. So that's one thing. And then the online rowing series was something I had this idea to do. We do a lot of instruction now and we have to say no to a lot. Like people call us all the time. It's like a father who wants to take his kids rafting, but his, it could be his wife wants to raft and the husband does, you know, wants this both ways. But somebody wants to learn how to raft and a parent, a, a kid says, you need training. And we can't offer as much training as we're asked to do. And one of my guides this summer, I talked to him about it, and he's like, let's do it. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's do it. And then the fall hits, and he's like, Zach, I don't have work. Like, let's do this. And I was like, all right, let's 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 do this. And so we spent five weeks filming instructional videos, like in, in the, right here where we're at now, like in my, in my garage. And then we go on the river and film the, the actual shots with drone and GoPro and put this thing together. And it's been fun. Well, having seen a couple of samples of the video work and again, the, for the fact that I'm an expert in adult learning, right. And in, in professional yeah. <laughs> adult learning, I just want to congratulate you. It looks fantastic. And I think if folks who are interested if folks are interested in learning to raft, it's a great resource, especially for rowing, right? Principally, principally around rowing your own boat, right? This is focused on rowing. If I had time to do all the projects I want to do, I, it'd be awesome. But we have a, a short one about Swiftwater Rescue, like an intro to Swiftwater Rescue course. We want to do, ideally, a pack raft course. There's a lot of people who want to learn pack rafting. I love to do an introduction to raft guiding. If you're going to show up, here are some things you should know, like the basics about how to fit a life jacket, how to throw a throw bag, work expectations. I don't know what those things are, but we've been taught, we have a lot of ideas now that we've done one. It sounds awesome. So interesting notion. I want to ask you about that. Actually, I've heard from a number of other owners, maybe you experienced this or not. I know you tend to hire mostly experienced guides, Zach, right? But I've heard from a number of owners that there's less interest in becoming a whitewater guide than there ever ever has been. They have fewer signups for guide schools. When I was younger and became a guide, it was very competitive, right? You had to kind of stand out at guide school in order to get hired. And now what I'm hearing is there just are not as many young folks applying to guide school. And secondarily, I think a, a really good positive trend, I've heard from some company owners to say that the number of women signing up for guide school has been higher than the number of young men signing up for guide school. So what, what's been your experience of late around that, Zach? Well, first to speak about the men versus women, we have more female guides than male guides. They're probably better guides. And I get probably eight female applications for every male application. Wow, that's incredible. So I see on, on some of your guides, Audrey and Emily and Courtney, and you got it looks like yes. I've met a couple of these couple of these folks. They seem like wonderful folks. You just mentioned three just world class, phenomenal guides right there. I mean, those three in particular are just world class and Pleasure to work with any of them at any time. And anyway, so I think it's, I don't know what's going on with guides, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of people who want a guide who don't want to go to guide school. I feel like 
they they don't want to put the time in. That's my best guess. You know, they're just like, I want to show up and and there's so many now colleges, they have four-year degrees in recreation. And they think that's the skill set they need to be a guide. And I mean, there's a lot in that, but I don't know. I I we don't do guide schools, so I can't speak to it exactly, but I get that same sense too. And we did guide schools for a while, and the people that were in them weren't that good. I remember teaching guide school, my last guide school. We had 12 students and the instructors at the end, we got together and said, there's nobody here we'd hire. Wow. That's a challenge. Disheartening. Okay. So let, let's back way up though, then let's talk about your, your experience at guide school. So how, how did you get started in, in the whole, uh, <laughs> in the whole rafting world now, which, which I think takes a lot of your time at this point. Quickly, I was a boy scout worked at Boy Scout camps, ended up at like a high adventure camp where I led backpacking trips and discovered kayaking through that high adventure camp and just fell in love with kayaking. And then a couple of years of kayaking, I wanted to be around more. I wanted to be by the river to kayak more. So I got a job on the South Fork of the American. But before that, I did go to guide school. So UC Davis in California, that's where I went to, to school. They had a guide training. The Aaron taught my guide training. Aaron was one of the instructors. He was at UC Davis as well. And I just did a basic guide training and then got a job on the American with EarthTrek, a really cool company based in Coloma. And was like, I just want to guide and kayak after work. And it was a dream come true. And I was just going to do it for a year. It wasn't something I was really saw myself doing long term. But then I ran the Tuolumne River. And at the end of that season, it was like, okay, this is a place I want to spend some time. This is a place I want to be a guide. I applied to one company on the, on the Tuolumne Echo. I got interviewed and they said, we're not going to hire you. You have one year of experience. And, and like, this is like, this is the Tuolumne. You can't show up with one year of experience. And It's a pretty elite river, right? Yeah. Yeah, but at that point, I had rafted the middle feather as well. And wow, we had done a lot of boating. We were prolific beyond guiding. So I felt confident. And then just luckily, they desperately needed a guide that spring and called me up and said, Hey, we'll give you a shot. And I quickly learned how to row because I never rowed and went and rode the Tuolumne at 2000 and did fine. And then, and that's a place that I spent a lot of time. You, you, I mean, you'd spend a lot of time there too. I know. Yeah. You know, I never guided there commercially. I guided Cherry Creek commercially, but I never guided the lower T commercially, but it is, we, we call it the California classic, right? I mean, it's a, it's a really amazing two day trip. You can do it in a day. You can spend three there, but I mean, it's so wonderful. The rapids are really nicely spaced. There's great scenery, right? I mean, it's, yeah. And there's only, I think there's only three or four companies that have permits there, Zach. So it's a pretty elite place to work though. And not everybody gets to work there, as you mentioned. All right, so cool. And then that evolved, you were working for Echo then, and that evolved ultimately into you owning your own company at some point. How'd that all work out? Well, so I was on the Tuolumne with Aaron and, you know, Aaron and I took two different paths. We were, you know, I was up kayaking Cherry Creek all the time, and we were trying to push. We were, I worked for Arda a lot too. We were trying to push Arda to running Cherry Creek so we could be Cherry Creek guides because the process to go work Cherry Creek was just like a, it was hard. And Aaron ended up getting out with Sierra Mac, and right about then I decided to go to Idaho and work on the Middle Fork of the Salmon. So our paths diverged at that point, and I went to go guide on the Middle Fork, which is kind of became my passion doing the longer trips and focusing more on that kind of thing and worked there for a while. And then, you know, when I was on the Tuolumne, my second season guiding there, I became the manager. And then when I went out to Idaho, I worked for a season or two and was the manager there. And the owner of the company, they, the owners, Dick and Joe, they retired or were going to retire. And they said, Hey Zach, we want you to take over the business when we retire. Incredible. And so I just, I quit my teaching job and Spent two years learning from them in their office in, in Berkeley. They retired. I moved the, the company to Hood River, Oregon. They still owned it, but I moved it here. And then over the next 10 years, started my own company while they wound that one down. And then bought pieces of that one. And then I think the last year I, I ran Echo was 2016, 17, something like that. And you were partnered with a fr another friend of mine also, uh, Dan Martin, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dan's a college buddy of Aaron and mine too. When I had to go, when I went to do the Tuolumne, I had to learn how to row. I called Dan Martin and said, Dan, teach me how to row. 
And so for spring break, we drove out to do a Lador on the green. And Dan just sat in the back of the boat and yelled, watch your downstream more. <laughs> that's how you learn how to row. That, that's funny. I, I hear myself saying that to my daughter and my son too. Watch your downstream more. Exactly. That's all he said. I go, teach me other stuff. He's like, nope, that's all that matters. Dan and I go way back. And so we're just old, old buddies. We've traveled around a lot together and he does own part of Northwest Rafting Company. That's wonderful. Dan is also a board member on Junior Guides Raft Camp. I don't know if you know that I have this entity with Sarah Canfield and a couple of other folks and Dan and his lovely wife, Sonia, are, are board members on Junior Guides Raft Camp as well, which we run twice a year. But they're wonderful folks with a couple of beautiful kids who participate with us as well. So amazing. So once when we talked previously, you talked about some leadership principles that that you've developed on your own. This was kind of a, a thing that you had decided to do as a business leader. And I find it I find it pretty impressive that that you decided to do this and simply become a better leader when as the owner, you, you're not really reporting to anybody, right? You don't work for anybody else. You're the owner of the business. So talk me through that. What inspired you to create your leadership principles? And then I'd love to hear more about those principles. Yeah, I think leadership is tough. Being self-aware of your leadership is tough. I was an Eagle Scout. I thought I was the ultimate leader. I had taken leadership classes as a Boy Scout. I'm, I'm a leader. And then I was a guide for a long time. I'm a leader. I know how to lead people. And then, you know, I just I was always viewed in that position. I viewed myself as having those skills. And when I went to go run a business, I really struggled with my leadership. I really felt like I was struggling. The people who worked for me didn't respect me the way I wanted them to. When I wanted to get things done, they weren't getting done. And I feel like my leadership skills are being put to the real test. This wasn't just like, can I get a boat down the river? Can I tell people to like pack up their bags and get in, a, in the boats? Can I, can I have the guides have dinner by seven? This is like real leadership, you know, and, and I was struggling. And so I went to read a, a bunch of books about leadership. And I know you love Tom Peters. Tom Peters drove a lot of my thinking about leadership back then. I read a lot of his books. And I really sat down and, and instead of working on things like marketing or other stuff I maybe should have, I focused on like, before I do anything, I need to make sure that I'm properly, I'm a being a good leader. I just read a ton of books. And I think I got pretty good at it. Like, I feel like it took me like three, four or five years to feel like, okay, I, I've got this down. And then I went to a seminar somewhere, I forget where, and they had us do this exercise where we basically at the end came out it was a seminar about leadership. You know, you always go to like a conference and they're like, oh, take this leadership class. And so this one I just did because I'm like, I'm still working on my leadership. And they said, and I feel like people are different leaders. Like you can't just teach leadership and it works for everybody. Like we have to be the type of leader that fits with our personality. That's my opinion at least. And so in this course, they basically had us read these certain passages and then talk about what stood out to us. And then through the process, you would come up with these like leadership traits that you felt were important to you. And I did mine and I was like, that's, yeah, that's the leader I want to be. That's, I assumed every, and I, I thought, I assumed everybody wanted to be that leader. But then the other people in the class, like, they're like, no, I want to be this leader and I want to be that leader. And I realized I wanted to aspire to that, to that leader. And then I have them in front of me because I really like these. I'll, I'll read them really quick. They're simple their traits. One of them is just having a vision. One of them is empowering growth. One is building community, communicates, honest, vulnerable. That's a big one. That's it. I want to lead with those traits. And so the person who gave the seminar said, you should evaluate yourself annually with your employees on these traits. And so I did it the first year and did not do perfect. <laughs> and I thought I would, because I get, I think I've read all these books. I was a Boy Scout. I should be the best leader ever. And I didn't do perfect. And it was really eye-opening to me. And the form I had them fill out is anonymous. So they can be totally honest. And I learned so much. And so now every year, I evaluate myself with my employees based on these traits. And I still haven't been perfect but it holds me accountable to be the leader that I want to be. So I'm super impressed that you had the perception that you wanted to be a better leader and that you were not being the leader that you wanted to be. I mean, was there anything in particular that stood out? I'm not trying to put you on the spot or embarrass you, but we've all had these moments where 
I have anyways, like I really should have said that different, or I really should have delivered more candid feedback, or I really should have been more clear in my instructions. Were there anything in particular or anything in particular that stood out to you that highlighted the need to improve your leadership? It's just asking people to do things and then not doing it. Right. I have a responsibility to our guests to provide the thing they want. And so I should be able to ask the guides to do something that fulfills that need. And so when they weren't doing it, I'm like, they don't respect me. They don't want to do the things I ask. So that was a big part of it. And and I think just like hearing at the end of the season, they would just send me notes and they'd be annoyed with me. And I'm like, I'm just not, this isn't going well. I I need to, to create an environment where they're happier and that we're working together and it's not difficult. And so when... When you're looking at these competencies, then has a vision, empowers growth, builds community, communicates. Sounds to me like maybe the communication space, and then there are others like vulnerable and honest, right? But there, there it sounds to me like maybe the communication space was where you felt you had the biggest opportunity as a leader. Honesty. They may not have perceived me as honest. Like that's something I take great pride in, right? But like the hard thing to swallow is when you don't get perfect scores for honesty right? That, that tells you that like, there's a mismatch there. So that, that's a big one. That hurts. And I perceive that you're probably a very honest guy of, of very high integrity, but there was some, some kind of disconnect there with your, with your teammates, right? Zach, one of the things in your leadership competency model is vulnerability, which seems to many leaders, I think a bit of a disconnect, right? If you are large and in charge, you're not necessarily vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, you expose some weakness as a leader, perhaps. But talk to me about what that means to you and where that resonated for you and why you chose that as part of your competency model. When I was beginning to be an outfitter, like moving from guide to outfitter, I was young and I looked young. And so I really had to like be perfect. And that was a lot of pressure on me. And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't be perfect. And so if I would make a mistake, it'd be hard to own up to it because I had to put on this perception of being perfect, right? And I realized I can't be perfect. I can't, I'm going to make mistakes. And I needed to basically allow myself to admit mistakes and admit to others that I'm imperfect. And that was a big breakthrough for me. And, and also, if, I, if I'm vulnerable, people are more willing to approach me. Like I'm more approachable in that situation. And sometimes I get in a situation where I'm unapproachable. And so I think being vulnerable just, like allows me to like not put myself on a pedestal and and just enjoy myself more and it's better for the team. I completely agree. I, I think it engenders some trust and some openness, right? And some real honesty, which was another one of your competency model tests. But I can tell you recently in my work, in my in my professional work, I I shared with my team leaders that I was feeling pretty vulnerable at the time. I was having a lot of anxiety. I felt like I wasn't performing terribly well. And it really kind of opened up a new facet of our relationship. So I really appreciate that that's that that's part of your part of your ambition. Okay, talk to me about your survey then, about your what we call them a 360, right? And in, in you know, a 360 degree feedback in in the professional world as well. But talk to me about your survey. Did you write that yourself? Did you find a model somewhere else? I showed it myself. I mean, it's on Google Forms, so it's nothing. It's not rocket science. <laughs> it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's anonymous, right? By by your staff. Yeah, I mean, the answers are you know like I don't like to have like excellent, good. Like I like to make the answers kind of fun. These ones aren't that fun, but it's like yes, absolutely, yes, more or less, generally, not really, definitely not. And I don't know him well enough. Like a lot of the guides, I don't know that well. So a lot of them can just say, I don't know Dak well enough to even comment on that. So. Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure a survey person would look at this and be like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> but I have a small sample size. I get 15 of these a year. You got about 15 guys in the company and, and you do this at the end of the year then typically? Yep, yep. At the end of the season, I just send it out to them. And almost all of them do it. And I, I quickly can tell, I also leave like areas for comments and I hear all kinds of stuff. I never would have heard. It has nothing to do with me too. It's like, well, by the way, I want to tell you about so-and-so or this thing. So I learned a lot from it. That's fantastic. Do you do, I'm I'm not familiar with a rafting company that does this. I mean, do you do performance reviews with your staff as well? You sit down with them and kind of review their year? I don't. I have a manager who does those. 
on the rogue with our guides. But one thing that I do when I show up to areas that's kind of like that is I just grab, every, I say, hey, I'm here for a day. I'd love to talk to you one-on-one. You don't have to. I just love to. If Let's just sit down with no agenda and chat. And those chats are powerful. Especially with a beer, right? But I, I, I agree with you is I think a no agenda chat reveals all kinds of stuff. Almost sometimes too, the longer it goes, the more you hear, right? If you're, if you're being really open and yeah, I try to do the same with all my staff as well as reach out to them wherever they are around the world and just have a casual chat, talk about video games or movies or whatever else. And then very frequently it gets back to something really salient for the office. So of the things in your in your leadership model, then again, putting you on the spot, which, which things do you most often hear that you have an opportunity to improve? And conversely, what do you think of your competency model or of your leadership style as your towering strength? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it's interesting because I get answers all over the board. I wouldn't say they're like, it's not just, they're not all saying this one thing. It's all over the board. I like to think that my strength is with empowering growth. I like to think that, but the results don't reflect that. And part of the reason is I'm running rivers in multiple states. I'm not there a lot for a lot of them. I'm not physically there. And so I think I'm providing them with growth opportunities, but if I'm not there to implement it, maybe it's not happening. And so it's just a good reminder of that. I would say that's one thing I think is the most important is creating an organization where they're improving. My employees particularly appreciate, I think, that I really try to support their growth as well. It was a great leadership book that I read some years ago. I can't recall the author. It's called Multipliers. And this book is really all about building the people around you and putting them in the position of visibility and opportunity. Instead of trying to own everything in the room, you are multiplying the others in the room. And this is an area like you I can probably improve, but of your competencies, I mean, you're clearly a man who has a vision. You have a vision about what you want to do and what you want to be. You certainly build community. There's a lot of communication in your work, obviously. So anyhow, I, it seems, seems to me like you're doing pretty well on your, on your competency <laughs> model, as near, near as I could tell, Zach. Well, I'll have to interview some of your guides and ask them. <laughs> yeah, that might be a different story. Again, it's really interesting because things you think you're perfect at, you're not. And this is a good reminder. Every year, like, man... You think you're killing it on certain things and there's a little weakness there. And it's a reminder to not let up on those things. Yeah. You know what, for me, my blind spot is I really desperately want to be a great and compassionate listener. I think that's such a powerful leadership trait. And yet I get so passionate about the things that I, that I'm excited about that I do a lot of talking, probably do more talking than I should so I, I always know that I have a, an opportunity around that. Let me ask you then, of the folks, you mentioned a couple of folks that you bought the company from and all that. Who are the best leaders that you've known? Who were your inspirations as a leader? Was there anybody in particular as a guide or as, uh, as a, a business leader, business owner? I mean, my dad was big, and that's kind of a cop-out answer, but... Not a cop-out at all. What, yeah, what, did he, what did he do? What, what was your dad like? He worked for the Boy Scouts. So there's professional Boy Scouters whose job is to do all the infrastructure and kind of be there every day. And, and that's what he did. And he, I would learn from him, he'd go to camps, like the Boy Scout camps that he was in charge of. And like people respected him. They just like, he showed up, they like, he'd go in the kitchen, he'd do dishes. That's the example I was shown as a leader to show up and like work and to talk to people and get dirty. And, you know, I worked at these camps and he would show up and I would just expect, that's just how it was. But when he left and a new person came in, people be cleaning everything before he got there, rolling out the red carpet, having special meals. That was eye-opening to me, that there's different types of leaderships. I didn't know you could have the red carpet rolled out for you. So I think my dad is, is a big one. Dick and Joe, the owners of Echo, were huge for me. They're very different people. Dick is the kind of person that can entertain 24 people with stories endlessly and but he's really bad at details right like he could be the life of the party and joe would have the most he, he could do the, the entertaining 24 people but he he was really good at like one-on-one -on -one conversation and he would sit down and so he would have very on a river trip dick would everybody would love dick he'd be the center of the party everybody would love being around him where joe at least half the people would have felt like they had a really in-depth like meaningful conversation with him and they, I learned that from them too, just like kind of watching them. And, and they taught me a lot about, in terms of outfitting, caring for the people that work for you, which is we've talked about, but also the suppliers, 
everybody, like the businesses in town, meet with them in the off seasons to buy them dinner, to like just get to know the whole holistic community. So that's something I learned from them. I think that was big. And just watching the way they handle things. When there was a major thing go wrong, they were just pretty relaxed. They're like, yep, that went wrong. Let's move on. And so I, I was lucky to, to learn from them. Pretty great mentors. I, I mean, I'm super lucky. And, and, and they introduced me to a lot of other outfitters, like Doug Timms in Idaho. Doug, I don't know if you know Doug, but he had a subway business, a Middle Fork business. Started, he bought Moravia, started Cascade Outfitters. And you know, I've had the opportunity to get to know him pretty well and learn from him. I actually sat down one time and just interviewed him with no microphones, just like, hey, Doug, I want to interview you, just me and you, to get his background. I've been lucky to be introduced by people like him. But from a guiding perspective, I don't know if I, I could say as a guide, I have one person. Oh, Steve Welch from Arda. Steve Welch is probably my biggest influence as a guide and an outfitter. I think back on a few of the folks that that inspired me as a guide. I never had to deal with the business aspect of uh, of rafting as as you do. You know, what? one of the things that intrigues me about the way you handle your business is people would ask me very frequently, like, you love whitewater rafting and you have some business acumen. Why don't you go run a rafting company? Why don't you go own a rafting <laughs> company? And I, and I always say, because I love rafting, right? I don't wanna, I don't want to hate rafting, but... It seems to me, because I think my experience has been a lot of owners actually just end up hating the sport, don't participate at all. It's just a commodity business of moving bodies down rivers and all that. But my sense for you is like, this is really, you're really passionate about every single aspect of it, Zach. I'm lucky that I ended up with the business I have. The fact that we run multi-day trips and just, I'm not sending 10,000 people down to South Fork. If that was the case, I could see myself getting really jaded and the places I work, I'm really lucky that I have a great relationship with other outfitters. And so it's just fun. Like again, on a day trip or somewhere else where if you're if you're just putting tons of people down the river and you're competitive with your, your competitors, that to me sounds like I would get burnt out. But I'm just really lucky in the situation I'm in. So about your company, about Northwest Rafting then, this was a kind of a combination of something that you started on your own plus acquiring some of Echo's permits and things like that, right? You know, in 2009, while I was running Echo, Sundance went for sale, Sundance River Center back then, and I bought it. And Dick and Joe allowed me to buy it while I ran Echo. And they were actually original partners, so the three of us owned it together. But that was going to be my long-term vision. And so, yeah, I just like was started on the Rogue. And then actually at a Rogue meeting, a Forest Service guy walked up to me and said, I really want to issue a permit on the Chetka River and you're the guy to do it. <laughs> it's going to take us a few years, but I feel like you have the, what it takes to run those trips. And so I that, I think that was our second permit was the Chetko. And then, which is a very, it's like one or two trips a year. These are like hardcore one or two trips a year type things. And then next, I think was the Oahe. We added the Oahe. And then I bought the Middle Fork business from Dick and Joe from Echo. And then I got a permit to run the Illinois River, which was a seven-year process that involved both U.S. senators and our House of Representative member and like five different Forest Service people. It was That's a whole story of its own. I want to hear a little bit about that, but just finishing kind of this profile of your business thought. So you're running rivers in Oregon, Idaho, and Bhutan. And then, oh, yeah, Bhutan. Yeah, Bhutan, and, and, and then partnering with some folks in Chile as well, right? I mean, I'd love to hear about your, your Bhutan business. What's that all about? How long have you been doing that? <laughs> I forgot about that. Well, let's get Chile out of the way. I mean, I like the food of the food a lot. I have friends down there. And so we just refer people down to the food of the food of people I like. So we don't, I go down there once every eight or nine years and it's not, it's not a major thing. It's just, I, I have good contacts down there and I just send people that want to go down there, give them advice. It's an incredible river. It's one of the best in the world. So if, if you want to see the best in the world, you should go there. Bhutan came from my, I went to Nepal in the nineties and kind of fell in love with it and then went to Tibet and realized Tibet was a mess. And was kind of disheartened by my visit to Tibet. And people told me for a few years, you should visit Bhutan. And I read about it and it was just expensive to go there. And my friend Phil DeRemer was running kayak trips there. And I said, hey, Phil, I'd love to tag along sometime if, you know, if that'd be cool. Because <laughs> I don't want to pay the, I can't pay the fee, it's expensive. He was like, hey, if you can get a few people together, we can run a cooperative trip. And so... I had some guests who I 
really got along with well and talked him into it. And our first trip, I think it was 2011, my wife came and it was my way of seeing Bhutan that one time. And I, I just fell in love with it. It was just a place that I personally identify with for a lot of reasons. And I threw it up on the website, said we're going back in 2012 and people signed up. And every year I think, I think nobody's going to sign up again. And I put it on the website and people sign up and we've been going for 10 years now. I got to tell you, it's my, it's on my bucket list to go do a trip with you there because Bhutan looks incredible. It looks unspoiled, right? It looks like what Tibet maybe once was or something. That's exactly, that describes it. They're actively participating in that form of Buddhism that has been around for hundreds and that, you know, a long time. I should know how long it is. My, my mind is slow on thinking through Bhutanese history, but these are ancient traditions that go really far back that, they still actively participate. They actually, they actively do. And they live this life that we, if you go anywhere else to travel, they're kind of putting on a show for you. You go to like Chile and they do an asada and you're like, oh, they're doing this thing, but it's for the tourists. But in Bhutan, they're not doing things for the tourists. They're just being them. And you just get to like peek in and look at it. You know, they're actually, they're, there's no show. And that's what I love about it. Well, it's a weird world this year, right, with the pandemic and travel virtually stopped around the world. But prior to that, I think I had some, I've been to almost 50 countries myself, Zach, never to Bhutan. But, you know, I'd had some concern that, gosh, most of the world's exotic places are no longer exotic. They're wildly over-commercialized and over-tourized. There's been a lot of talk about over-tourism in many of the world's great cities, Paris and elsewhere. But Bhutan just still looks so pristine to me. It looks amazing. Yeah. And I, I keep looking for, I travel, I go to Bhutan every year, but then I go look for the next one. I keep not finding it. But Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan is there too. That Central Asia is unspoiled as well. I'm fascinated by these places. Uh, again, many of the places that I've traveled have been spoiled. Very few places, uh, these places left. Okay, I want to ask you about your political activity because your lobbying and the work that you've done in Washington, D.C. and all that. I'd love to know how you got involved in that because this advocacy is so important for river people. And I just think you're, you're really doing the right thing, Zach, by, by you know, working towards preservation and conservation and wild and scenic rivers and so forth. So tell, tell us about, more about that. Well, I, I don't really, I was trying to think how I started doing it. Actually, it's an example that Dick and Joseph for me. Now to think about it, Joe helped form the Tuolumne River Trust and was on the board and was a president for a long time. And Dick was on the board of American, American Rivers and a bunch of other things. And they were always actively involved. I hear them on phone calls all the time. And that was the example set for me. And so I get involved when I can. And I have places that I particularly love that are threatened that you know, I go to, so I, my, the part I can really do is go to these places and bring back photos and share stories. The people that are protecting them, the, the, the actual work is happening by the lawyers. There's lawyers who know how to change the laws. There's people who work for Pew, for example, who have the connections with the, the right people. Like that's the real work that's happening in an office, but they need stories and photos and letters to the editor and tweets and op-eds and that's where I can come in. So I've, over time, just kind of gotten involved with this stuff and written enough op-eds and built enough of a social media following to share things with that I have my part in the whole, the whole thing. And then well, I got invited to go to D.C. for the first time to advocate for the Oahe, having no idea what I was advocating for. They're just like, you're, you're a business owner. We're going to send you there and go meet with the delegation and talk to them. And I went to D.C. thinking you know, it was full of criminals and it was a broken system. And I actually left inspired. I was like, they're doing things. And everybody, I realized, well, this is my own take and I could be wrong, but everybody's like, you know, Congress does nothing. They're lazy. They don't get anything done. They're given so many bad ideas and they're really good at flushing through the bad ideas. That's how I, that was my take. And so I was representing some bad ideas and they asked all the right questions and got through what I was asking for. And I don't want to talk about that because that's a whole separate topic, but I became pretty inspired. And so every chance somebody was like, Hey, Zach, go to DC. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I want to go make a difference. And really seeing 
I mean, over time, I made connections with some of the senators and their staffs, and I got to know a representative here in Oregon pretty well. Not, not pretty well, but I got to know him a little bit to where we, I could move the needle on things. And, and that, was, that felt good. I mean, my ego is definitely stoked a little bit by doing that, but I liked it because I was making change that I wanted to see happen. And it is, it's kind of addictive to me. And I even brought some river guides over. Aaron came with me a couple of years ago. I, I have a nonprofit that helps protect the Calmeopsis. And we had some money. So we flew over some guides and went around and made the rounds. So you had to, you had to buy a suit that was not a dry suit or a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of suits. You know, I have my DC attire now for sure. And so I, I just really personally like that. And, and I think where I can make a difference is because I'm spending a lot of time in these places and I'm taking photos, I can then go to our elected officials and show them these places and talk about them with a passion and say, Hey, I don't understand the lawyer stuff. I don't understand. Like I have to say all the time, like guys, I don't, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm going to tell you this place is deserving. If you're going to protect something somewhere, protect this place. Yeah. And that's just gotten me more and more motivated to go out and see more of Oregon's rivers and learn more about the law. Like I now have a better understanding about the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. So I can talk more intelligently about that when I talk to them. I really like that work. It's just another another reason that I admire you and appreciate you, Zach. <laughs> I, I, you know, the advocacy and all the hard work you're putting in there. So where are you business-wise? Are you happy with your company as it is, as a leader? Are you happy with where you're at, the number of rivers that you're running, the number of guides that you're running? You like the size that you are as a company? 15-ish guides and 10-ish rivers or something like that in your catalog? How, how are you feeling about your business right now? Yeah, we run five rivers. We have about 20 guides, I think. I'm happy. I'm not good. I don't want to grow. It's all a puzzle together. Everything complements each other well. I work enough, but I have time to do these other things I want to do and still go boat. So I'm not overworked. I think 15 or 20 guides is a good number to know everyone personally. When I ran Echo and it was bigger, I couldn't have those personal relationships with everybody that I do now. So a lot of my peers that I started with outfitting are definitely on a trajectory to grow fast. And I'm just like, nope, I'm good. We're happy. No, that's excellent. It's good to hear. I, I kind of hoped, I kind of hoped that maybe there was a Northern California option in there for Northwest Rafting. Right? <laughs> I specifically named a Northwest Rafting Company so I wouldn't go into California. <laughs> Avoiding California then, right? We run multi-day trips. And so that really, I mean, the twal- I thought about the Tuolumne, but it, it would just take so much of my time. I wouldn't want to be spread out to where I couldn't fo- do a really good job of the things that we do. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I like it that you have a focus and that you have kind of an ethos for your company. And it looks to me like you run some great rivers, Zach, and I'm, I'm really impressed. Okay, last question. When you think about the guides that you've got, the leaders that you've deal that you deal with, I wonder if there's kind of a parting tip that you can leave us with in terms of leadership, right? In terms of communications, leadership, and so forth. Maybe it's a problem that you most often see or an opportunity that you most often see with guides and leaders, or maybe it's like the best piece of advice you ever got as a leader. What would you like to leave us with, Zach? Read Tom Peters. <laughs> I think, and I think just reading in general to me. The most I've learned is from getting other people's advice. We live in an age where we can go to the bookstore and read books, or with our phone, we can pull up a podcast and have amazing leaders at our fingertips. And so that, that's probably the best advice I can come up with. I feel like Tom Peters is the, uh, was the Simon Sinek of 20 years ago or so, right? But now I'm a huge fan as well, primarily because he talks a lot about empathy and talks a lot about appreciation and compassion and being a great leader in terms of being a great emotionally intelligent leader. So I really appreciate that response, Zach. I'm a huge fan as well. He has some books I'm really fond of, but he's somebody who early on said, women are taking over. Like that's going to happen there and, and point out why women are great leaders. And I was like, oh yeah, I sh- actually, I need to be replaced by a female. Like he early on said that, and there's a quote I'll never forget that he has in one of his books. I When I started running the company, I, I was like, I'm going to run the company. I don't want to do sales. I'm a business. I'm, I'm running the company. 
I'll just have somebody else do sales. I didn't want to do sales. It bothered me. And there's a quote in this book that says, this is some of the effect of leaders sell. If you don't want to sell, don't pretend to be a leader. And I changed my whole perspective on sales. I write there, bought a book about sales and dove in and it helped a lot. Like I've just been like, I got to do that. I'm going to, I, I can't just push off to somebody else. The thing that I share with my team is that candidly, everyone is selling all the time. You're selling something all the time. You're selling yourself as a leader. You're selling yourself as qualified. You're selling yourself as a podcast producer. You're constantly selling all the time. And for you in particular, I mean, you're talking about real revenue, not just reputation or something like that, but actual real business. So no, that was tremendous. Zach, it was so fun to, to catch up with you. And as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with admiration for all the stuff that you do. You're <laughs> too nice. No, really. I mean, the videos that you produce, there's nothing to be ashamed about at all around that because this is such a valuable library and such a valuable resource. So for folks who don't know this, you want to go to YouTube and follow the channel NW Rafting, Northwest Rafting. Check out your beautiful website. Whitewater Guidebook is great online. There's just the library of media that you have now, Zach, must be incredible now for all the photographs and, and videos and everything that you have. Incredible. I have a lot of photos. I would say if you as a listener, want to follow something, it would be to follow my Twitter, Instagram, which is just at Z Collier. And the reason I say that is because I can get political capital by having followers there. So like when I go to do something on the political front, like by having more YouTube followers, whatever, like most people don't really want to watch me yap about rafting. It's a very small population, but it really helps me share messages about river conservation. Or when I go talk to a senator and they, senators really care how many Twitter followers I have. Wow. So I have a little bit more... Pull credibility. Yeah, I have 10 Twitter followers. Like, oh, it's Zach. He, you know, whatever. But if I show up with the Twitter following, they pay a little bit more attention. So it helps me make a little bit more of a dent into some of the political stuff I'm doing. So sorry, sorry to push what I want, but... No, no, I'm glad you did. So it's, it's Z Collier, though. I think I've been following NW Rafting or something, but we're following... NW Rafting is my business stuff. And then Z Collier is my personal stuff I use for, for conservation and political stuff. Well, if it helps with that, then I'm, I'm all for it. Exactly <laughs> the best, man. Thank you so much for uh, appearing. I'm, I'm really, uh, really grateful for your time and, and glad to know you. And I hope we get the chance to vote together sometime soon. We will. We will. It's just a treat to talk to you, too. So thanks for making this happen. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Zach Collier as much as I have. I find this fascinating. Zach is simply humble, perceptive, and passionate enough that he cobbled together his own leadership self-intervention. I think it's an inspiration. You'll see in his online work and even comments that he makes that he's equitable, authentic, and a truly gracious man. In the leadership world, we call this emotional intelligence. If you're interested in going rafting out west, Zach spares no expense on the best equipment around and has some of the best guides anywhere in the industry. It's nwrafting.com. And please do follow Zach on Twitter at Z Collier. It gives him the kind of political credibility that helps in the good fight. And of course, don't forget about his YouTube channel. This project has no paid sponsors at present, but here's some of the equipment I use when I'm chasing adventure. For river gear, I buy nearly everything from NRS. I wear Adidas Terex shoes on the river, an Astral life jacket, a gaff helmet, and when not wearing an NRS wetsuit or dry suit, I wear Eddie Bauer guide shorts every single day above 50 degrees and Columbia shirts for comfort. My boat of choice for hundreds of class five days over many years has been Sotar. It was the state of the art raft then, and it still is today. The credits for Leading Steep are short. I write and record this show myself, but I work with the genius people at Hatch. That's usehatch.fm. All the interviews are remote right now, and I'm using a cool tool called squadcast.fm. Thank you so much for listening to the Leading Steep podcast. Find out more at leadingsteep.com. I'm Barry Cruz, and I hope we'll get to paddle together someday very soon. Mm -hmm.